You're listening to History Man, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. This episode, we're talking again with Dr. Trey Dunaway in the biggest battle of the 18th century. And we're continuing with that episode on smallpox. So, Trey, thank you. Let's, uh, let's continue with this, uh, this episode and tell me a, a little bit about what's your research and what you know about it. Happy to, happy to be back with you, Eric. Um, yeah, today we're going to talk about a story about an English lady, a slave, a Boston minister, and a physician. Go into a bar. No, that's, the, that's <laughs> that, I, there's no punchline for that one, is there? But we're going to talk about variolation or engrafting of smallpox. And this was the beginning of the end. And it starts at the beginning of the 18th century. You see, 18th century smallpox, it came, they, they describe this in endless detail, just as news people will describe COVID-19 symptoms in endless detail. So we know exactly what they talked about. There are different varieties. There's the discrete variety, which means you have discrete lesions on your skin, which would mean that the smallpox would be more spread out. Maybe your dose wasn't as high for whatever reason. And then you had the confluent which means those individual lesions would spread onto each other. Obviously, you're going to be sicker with that. And that would kick your rate up from a 20 to 40% mortality to about a 60% mortality. So that would be significant if you went confluent. If you had a hemorrhagic, which implies obviously they're bleeding, that would kick you up to about a 96% mortality. And if you had a flat or malignant, I think probably that's because your immune system would not mount enough of a defense to make a bump on your skin. But it was also called the malignant variety that had a whopping 100% mortality in the 18th century. The mortality was greatest for the very young, less than one years old, and over 50 years of age. Hey, does this sound, does this sound vaguely familiar? You know, you have the, the age over 60, which, which, <laughs> I discovered is what DHEC in South Carolina is calling, um, they call anyone over the age of 60 elderly. So uh, I, I, recent, I, I, I pass for the elderly now, although I don't feel too elderly. But usually you died after about 10 to 16 days of suffering with this disease. And uh, Native Americans often died after only about four days, even before the manifestation of a rash. So it was, it was a pretty significant problem for Native Americans. We talked about that in the last episode, if I remember correctly. But what usually happens is for the first couple of days, there are no symptoms. And then eventually, you start to feel flu-like symptoms. And then you develop a rash. And then you either have scars from the rash or you die. And then you wouldn't have enough time to work on scar formation. In today's medical procedures, I hear you talking about that. And we've, we've talked about how a lot of these symptoms sound a lot like what we're dealing with right now. And I, I listen to them and I, quite frankly, get a little freaked out. Okay, because I'm like, well, that could be anything. I mean, you're sitting there and you're, you, you hear that stuff and then you go start having a headache and then your stomach aches. And then you maybe you do I feel hot or whatever. We have blood tests to deal with that now. Yes, I mean, would you would you be able to see that in a blood test, or do you just not know until un, un, unless, it's of course, too late. you have a false positive or false negative, which <laughs> which the media doesn't really like to talk about too much because they think they want to assure people. But yes, we do have testing today, and they did not have it 
But also, you, you have to understand, most physicians got every disease known to mankind when they were in medical school. Okay. It, it, not often was it real, but it certainly was in their heads. I mean, every time I get a headache, I'm thinking, uh, is it worse in the morning than in at night? Maybe I have a brain tumor? We all do that. Right. And with, right. with the vagueness and the, the plethora of COVID-19 symptoms and signs, any, anything you do. I, I read one article about some woman who was on a, on a first date until she sneezed. And then he said the date went downhill after that. And this is, this is, again, a human response to disease, especially if they don't understand it, which was really remarkable because in the 18th century, this is, this is what happened. They didn't understand it, but yet they still came up with a way to treat it. Even though they didn't understand the nature of a virus or a bacteria, they still did find a way to treat it. So to go back to the beginning of the 18th century, we're going to go back to the preacher Cotton Mather. Okay. Cotton Mather had a slave, Onesimus, and on December 15, 1702, he wrote, Good servant at the expense of between 40 and 50 pounds purchased for me a slave. So Cotton Mather, who was a Boston preacher, purchased, had a had purchased slave, Onesimus. And he came from Africa, where smallpox was endemic. It was already present. And he learned about what Onesimus did in order to treat the disease, which Isn't was the very earliest form of variolation. Okay. So that's right at the beginning of the 18th century. And so that was the, that was the story about the slave and the Boston minister. But let's move on to an English lady. The English lady's name was Lady Montague. Lady Montague was the wife of the British ambassador to Turkey. Okay. So they were in Turkey. Charles Maitland was the embassy surgeon. So they had their own surgeon there at the embassy with the ambassador and his wife. And Lady Montague hung out with Turkish ladies. And she discovered they had smallpox parties. What? Do you remember... Do you, did you did your I mother mean, ever parties, did your but... mother ever bring you to children that had mumps or measles at some point before there were vaccinations available? They'd have mumps parties or measles. See, see, the thing is with mumps, you want to get it when you're young. If you get it when you're older, which again is another vac which is another virus. If you get it when you're older, it can cause orchitis, which in in, in addition to being really tender and painful, it can leave you sterile. I mean, I remember when they would. My mom would make sure that I'd be around other people with chickenpox. You know, yes, that sort of that's thing. before the vaccine. So you'd get it when you're young. Right. The mortality was limited. Well, they do the same thing for their children. Okay. And they would have variolation parties. Well, that's the name we had for it. But that started off. And at the time when Lady Montague figured this out, she had her five-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter inoculated through the guidance of the embassy surgeon who learned from the Turks how they treated endemic smallpox. Wow. So again, that was uh, in 1721. Well, you know, medicine uh, moves slowly. As physicians, we are by nature cautious and hesitant, and we don't want to promote something that's going to backfire. Right. You know, our motto is do no harm. So we want to make sure what we're going to prescribe or, or recommend is not going to do any harm. But Lady Mary 
Wortley Montague. She was born in 1689 and died in 1762. Uh, in, 17, in the 1720s with this Dr. Maitland, he recorded what happened and he sent this to the British scientific societies. Okay. So word got out about what was going on in Turkey. And I'll talk more about variolation. Gosh, you know, the time always flies by when I'm with you. I, I, wish, I wish we could pack more in, but we'll just do another segment on actually the mechanics of how to variolate or to vaccinate, which is different okay. for smallpox. We'll have to do that another time. But real quickly, what you've said is that just in, in our talks here, uh, the smallpox, the treatment has, has been seen or, or taken from a slave from Africa and from some Turkish uh, royalty. Is that what you're telling me? That... From, from high society Turks. Wow. Yes. Wow. Because so... as, as in always, you know, a, a small idea starts. It has to develop and, and get legs. And then finally it becomes self-evident, the value of it. But so often in society... When somebody comes up with a different idea, first they're ridiculed, and, and then there's, there's violent opposition, and then finally it's accepted as, well, of course, this is how you treat this. So the same thing was true in the 18th century. What happens is that Dr. Emmanuel Timonius of Constantinople sent a letter that was translated to be published in the Philosophical Translations of the Royal Society Spring Issue talking about making the fact, this was in 1714, making the fact of inoculations available to English-speaking readers. Cotton Mather, remember, the Boston preacher, called to Dr. Woodward of the Royal Society, registered an intent to call a consultant of Boston doctors of, on inoculation, if smallpox ever returned to Boston. And in June 24, 1721, a letter to Boston physicians including Zabadil Boylston. Now, if you go to Boston today, there's a Boylston Street, and that's named after the good doctor. Is that right? But Zabadil Boylston, now again, this was about 1721, writes in his diary, upon reading of which I was very pleased and resolved in my mind to try the experiment. That's June 26, 1721, two days after reading Cotton Mather's letter. He inoculated his six-year-old son and a slave, Jack, and Jack's son, Jackie. Boston was a hotbed of smallpox before the Revolution. Again, it's a seaport. Right. So you're going to get people on ships from their various places. Now, they quarantine ships. You know, you had, a, you had a pass muster that, no, I'm not sick, or yes, I will wear a mask. And then yet sometimes people just are too eager to get ashore, and they're going to say, well, yeah, but I had a headache, but it's better today, so I think I can go ashore. Well, bingo, there you go. And you have somebody with smallpox that just entered Boston. So what would happen is Boston would have episodic endemics. Between 1636 and 1702, there were seven epidemics of smallpox in the city. There's about 19 years of freedom from smallpox, and then in April of 1721, the HMS Seahorse reintroduced smallpox. And this disease was a consequence of sin, according to the, according to the preachers of the time. And they wanted days of humiliation for God's mercy. Well, no, it's because somebody from the seahorse, the HMS seahorse, came ashore with smallpox, and that started an epidemic. What you'd see was sweeps of epidemics that would be phased out over a period of time. This is where you get into herd immunity. 
So if you have an endemic disease that sweeps through in, in episodic epidemics, you will have highs and lows over time. So it sweeps through the population. Most people that have not been exposed to it are exposed to it. Those susceptible become ill. Those really susceptible become dead. And the people that survive it are now resistant to smallpox. This is the concept of herd immunity. If a certain percentage of the population is resistant to disease, it won't spread from person to person. But if you wait a couple of years, more children are born. You have other people moving to the area that were not there presently when the, other, when the first epidemic swept through. Then it would be ripe for another epidemic when somebody gets off of a ship and reintroduces it into that society. So those sequence of events between an English lady, a slave, a Boston mer mer minister, and a physician brought smallpox to a head in the 1720s with the most recent epidemic that was sweeping Boston. And you did have a physician, Zabdiel Boylston, who was tuned into this, paying attention, and he decided to inoculate his own son as well as a slave and the slave's son, Jackie. And that's the beginning of the end for smallpox. It all took place in Boston. And at that time, in the 1721, the Boston treatment that he published showed a 14% mortality from natural smallpox and only a 2.5% mortality from engrafted smallpox. But unfortunately, we're out of time. So we'll have to talk about the difference between natural smallpox and engrafted smallpox in Dr. Boylston's experiments with Boston society that led to the eventual eradication of smallpox. Very good.